0: Father, we come before you, and we're grateful just to be gathered together in your name. Lord, I pray that you would be with my, my words and with the ears of those listening to this message, Lord. I pray that you would just speak truth into all of our lives. And I ask, Lord, if, if somebody is in a place this morning that is kind of talked about in your message, Lord, that they would be reached and that they would really maybe start, even for the first time, to rely and depend on you more than they ever have before. And we just praise you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are wrapping up our study in Nehemiah. Some of you feel like, awesome, the beating is about to end. But others have probably, maybe hopefully, been encouraged by the, the series that we've been going through. We have one more message that's going to be happening in two weeks from today. But today we kind of get to an interesting part of the book, and you would think that at the end of this, maybe it would be a happy ending, but we find out as we dig into Nehemiah 13. That's where we'll be. We'll actually be doing double duty in Nehemiah 13, and then also in Matthew 14. So if you want to flip there before I start reading, that would be good. Um, Start in Matthew 14, verse 22 through 33. Here in a few to catch you up if you've missed some of this. What has happened thus far is Nehemiah has a very comfortable job with the king. He's hanging out. He's a cupbearer to the king. He has a high level of responsibility to the king. But yet he hears about these things that are happening in the city of Jerusalem. So he decides that he not only just wants to hear about what's happening in his city, the city that he so dearly loved, but he comes back to that city and he starts to make these these reforms and he becomes the governor. He starts to reform not only just the structure of the city, but also we see some spiritual reforms kind of come in through a guy by the name of Ezra, of which the book of the Bible is written. So Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of tag-teaming here, Ezra being the spiritual leader, Nehemiah being kind of the the governor, kind of civic leader of, of that day. And he comes into the city. We see this great renewal. People have responded to the things that was saying in the opening of the word of God. And they were, they, their hearts were tender to what was happening. So much so that they actually completed the work of rebuilding the walls, the gates, and the doors in 52 days. An amazing feat. And so much so that they, they not only did the work, but they also celebrated that work and then they had this all-out party on top of the walls we talked about a couple weeks ago, where they actually had choirs on top of the very walls that people were mocking them, saying that the walls would fall, even if a small animal were to go on top of it. So not doing that to boast in themselves, but how great their God is, and they have done this work unto the Lord, and because of that, that now they had a celebration. Well, some time has lapsed here, as you will see in, in verse 1, it kind of, before we get to it, it said, reading from the New International Version, it says, on that day. Jumping into context here, on that day is not a direct connection with the preceding verses of chapter 12. It's actually, he's kind of like, it's like a big clump and he's saying on the day of which the things I'm, that I'm talking about right now. So just so you, it doesn't, I, I don't want you to think that it piggybacks on verse 12 because it kind of doesn't. As a matter of fact, we're going to see here that there's a couple of years of lapsed between this time and the time previous. you will following that so far? If not, it'll be clear here in a minute. Now what we're going to do is we're going to read uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5 first. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. And those, if you remember back to Numbers 22 and 23, that is what this is making reference to. Verse 3, When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Does that name seem familiar? And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So as you go through this, and we kind of... Jump into this chapter, we kind of see that there's some things happening that actually this uh, this guy, Elisha had was a priest, who'd been put in charge of of all the storerooms of the house of God. That in, in itself is not a bad thing, but we're gonna kind of see some mistakes that he met or rather that he made along the way. It says in verse one, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written. Okay? So preceding all of this, this is the events that Nehemiah is writing about, and he clears all this up and he says, when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Now, a foreign descent is not necessarily talking about a nationality. They're actually talking about spiritual beliefs. So these people, they had went through and they had made these mistakes. The Ammonites and the Moabites were amongst the Israelites. That's a lot of ites altogether. They were amongst the Israelites, and what has happened is they have actually kind of infiltrated where God's holy people at that time, the Israelites, were actually being kind of secretly invaded by these people of just, of the Ammonite people and the Moabite people. But look what happened in verse 3. What happened when they, when they heard the law being taught to them? When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of Foreign descent. So they seen there was a problem. Then they went back to the law because that's all they followed at that time. They went back to the law and they said, you know what? Wow, as, as I look at the law and it tells us that we're not supposed to be around these type of people. Or, and For us, it's not a matter of just being around them. They actually had brought these people, as you see, like into the house of God. And they didn't even believe the same thing. So the problem existed, and he says, when the people heard this law, they were reminded of this law, the light bulb went off, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. But then you see a transition in verse 4. This is kind of like, this is written in literary form, not necessarily chronological order, so that's what makes this a little bit difficult to read and understand. It says, before this, Elisha the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, Tobiah and Sanballat are the very people who had been thorns in Nehemiah and Ezra's side the whole way. They questioned the work, they questioned his integrity, they questioned the Lord. That all they wanted to do was backbite about all the work that Nehemiah and Ezra had done. So we see that Eliashib the priest and it's believed that he's actually that Eliashib is actually kind of distantly related to Sanballat. And we know that Sanballat and Tobiah were working in conjunction with one another if you've been following along through the, through the book. And it says, He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him a large room, formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So you see somebody who doesn't necessarily, who doesn't believe in the work that's going on, He doesn't even he's not there to support the work that's going on whatsoever, and then this guy, Eliashib, the priest, he has this, this idea that Tobiah comes up to him and he says, hey, he's like, hey, I've got, you've got this room that's not being used in, in the house of the Lord. Is there any way that I could just, you know, I could maybe even come help out a little bit around here. If you just let me shack up in that room and it'll be fine. Everything will be taken care of. Just, just let me stay there. I'll mind my own business. Everything will be fine. Eliashib had forgotten either that or he, he not only had forgotten, but he'd become complacent He's the priest. He got complacent about what had been happening throughout the whole time of rebuilding. The Sanballat and Tobiah were actually going against the work the whole time. But Eliashib has this, whether he's being pushed to or he's just being complacent in, he thinks it's an okay idea, and he invites him to come and actually stay. And And he's actually staying in the same room. Did you catch that? He's actually staying in the same room where the grain offerings, incense, temple articles and the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites. These are things that are supposed to be caring for the house of the Lord. And he is just shacking up in there. He doesn't believe what they believe. He's not going in the same direction that they are. There's no reason why he should be where he is. But yet, Eliashib, somewhere along the way, become complacent about what he knew to be true, but yet didn't act on that truth and became complacent and started to make these mistakes. I wonder how many of us have kind of done the same thing and we've become complacent and we just kind of plot through our life and we just kind of, maybe we we know the things that we should do, but yet we don't do them. Maybe maybe we're even convicted of the things that we should do, but yet somehow we just get complacent and we just kind of cast it off and just kind of say, you know what, that's somebody else's responsibility or I'll pray about that, which is also sometimes a cover for, uh, uh, you know, I might pray about it, but I'm just going to put that responsibility on someone else. I wonder how many of us have gotten complacent in our walk with Christ. See, when I look, when I look at Eliashib, I don't necessarily, when I, when I read the scripture, I don't necessarily see somebody who meant ill intent. I see somebody who just kind of like was going through the motions. He became complacent. And he made a very drastic error of which Nehemiah had to address. Something for us as as a church, Dublin Bible Church, but really just the church in general, is we're supposed to be reaching the lost world, not just our world, but the world globally. One thing that, that I think I would like for us to do is just to let people be known by the Christian character, not by your church affiliation or your church attendance. Let people know that you're a Christian by your character, by how Christ is changing you from the inside out, not by the people you hang out with, not by the denomination that you hang out with, not by any of those other, not even necessarily for how well you serve Him, but yet by the difference that He's making in your life, day to day. That is, goes against complacency. In addition to that, let the watching world see us as a church not complacent in, in our devotion for Him or in our compassion for them. You know, I was, I was moved yesterday. We did the soup kitchen yesterday. And, and we do four times a year. We serve a soup kitchen across town. And as I was sitting there, and, and I'm kind of handing out all these meals. I just sat there, and, and the adults are kind of on one side, and it's intermixed with some kids. And then there's, if you've ever been there, you know, there's a few tables that just have children. And I sat there, and I see, I see these little kids, they're cute little kids. They got food all over them. Kids just make a mess, don't they? I mean, they got food all over their mouths, their shirts, their, their friend shirts. I mean, they're everywhere. And I, I'm sitting here looking at these kids, and my heart is breaking for these kids because I know that if some, if God doesn't intervene in that situation, and through those parents, even if the parents are in the, if, if they're, if they're in the lives of those kids or not, I know that if something doesn't drastically change in their life, they are going to repeat the same cycle of which their parents are doing. It happens in all of our lives. We we have this cycle. The cycle of sin but I sit here and look at these kids and I'm like you know what and I think about what's on the screen and, and I thought about this this morning I'm like you know that's the kind of thing that we need to speak we need to speak for those children because you know what they're trying to figure life out they, they don't have it all figured out they don't know why mom and dad is not both in the picture they don't know why maybe mom is in the picture and dad is not in the picture Or maybe it's vice versa. They don't understand that. All they know is something's not right. Who's going to speak for them? Who's going to speak for them? I don't know about you, but when I look in the Scripture, in the New Testament, that's the kind of people that Jesus tells us that we need to speak for and care for and love on. That's the compassion that I'm talking about. And I sat there and I looked at those kids and I was like, Lord, I want to take every one of them home. not that I'm not, I, I don't have it within me to fix to fix all of what's broken but my heart is saying you know what I may not be able to fix all what's broken but maybe I can help fix one or two but the best thing we can do is to shine the light of Christ unto those kids so they see that there's freedom in Christ that the way that, that they're being raised and the way that they're living doesn't have to be that way who's going to do it it needs to be the church I hope it's all of us. You know, it's easy to love people who are just like us, isn't it? It's easy. Sometimes it's not. I mean, I'm, I'm like complicated, so if somebody's just like me, it's almost kind of scary and almost butt heads a little bit. But, but it's, you know what I mean. It's, it's easier to love people who are like us. It's people who are not anything like us that it's like, man... To walk across the aisle and just like, and to talk to that person, it may seem a little bit difficult, but you know what? That is sometimes a battle of flesh and spirit, and the Holy Spirit's telling you, you know what? Step across the line. If everybody was just like you, what would the world be like? I could answer that, but I'm not going to. My question for you is this, though, getting back to Nehemiah. Have you become complacent? When you see the least of these that Jesus talks about, what do you see? Do you see people caught in, the, in their own situation, a best of their own doing, something that you have no compassion for, you have no love for, no caring for? Do you see people like that? Are you broken by looking at people like that? You should be. If we're a follower of Christ, you should understand and you should have the Holy Spirit residing within you and speak into those situations. You should be compelled to at least do something. 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 Even if it's a little thing, it's something. Many Christians have become complacent in the country that we live in. And they do think everything's just going to be okay. You know what? The Lord's in control. You know, I hear that. The Lord's in control. Which, you know what? You're right. That's it. But that also is a blanket for saying, Lord's in control, so I'm not going to do anything. But the Lord uses people to work out His will. Have you all realized that? So for us... We have to be on our game, so to speak. We can't be complacent as Christians. We have to look for those opportunities that God may want us to intervene and speak into on His behalf. On His behalf. But if we become complacent, we think everything's going to be okay, ah, that's somebody else's problem. Ah, that'll be taken care of. Nah, you know, my my coworker, he is as lost as the day is long. He's fine. Somebody else, I have to evangelize him because I just don't want to take the time. That's complacency. When we have that kind of complacent attitude, we cannot be used of God in the way that he would like to use us. Your enemy will not stop attacking, so we cannot stop watching. Your enemy will not stop attacking. Your enemy around you will tell you, you know what, it's fine, just go to work, go to church, go to work, go home, go to church. Maybe, maybe you do small groups and church, Wow. And maybe you do, you know, you meet at church two times a week. Then all of those things, and you kind of we get in a cycle, we get in a rut where we keep doing the same thing and the same thing and the same thing. Not like looking around, not seeing our lost neighbors and friends and co coworkers. Maybe not looking at the least of these, but yet we go through and we think everything's going to be okay. That is exactly where Satan wants you to be. That's exactly where he wants you to be. We cannot, we can't stop watching because let me let me tell you. He, you are being attacked. And it is a full-on war, not only for your life, but all those that he can infect through you. I believe it. I hope you do too. You have to be on your game. He will not stop attacking, so we can't stop looking. What about your life? Complacent living is just like a slow, agonizing death. That's all that is. That's not deep, okay? That's, that's not, but it, that's what it is. It's just a slow, agonizing, Numb, agonizing death of just not being used, not having a passion-filled life. Elisha, he had went through and he said, oh, Tobiah, sure, you can hang out. It's no big deal. We have empty space anyway. We're not even using that. Come on. Just come on in. Seemed like a good idea at the time. But what were the lasting effects of that? The same thing that Nehemiah had to address here. They're pretty drastic. Let me ask you this. What would happen if a butcher was complacent at work? Get that visual. A butcher. What would happen? That's gross, right? I think in the eyes of God, it's equally as gross when a Christian becomes complacent in their walk. As, as disgusting and graphic as that image is that you have in your head, and I hope you have it in your head, it's that disgusting when a Christian doesn't walk for the Lord, and they, they just, they're complacent, they just go about their day as if they're the only people on earth God wants to use you in amazing ways. He wants to use you to reach people, not only to fill this place, but to speak truth to other people because it's the continuation of the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. As it it leaves our life and then affects other people, it just has this expounding effect. Just thousands of people could be reached by simply you sharing your message, the good news that God put in you. That you would not be complacent in your walk with Christ, but you would be intentional, and the same thing we talked about, right here, be intentional in our relationships, to hopefully be able to share Christ with someone and invite them into our fellowship. And in doing though, in doing those things, people could be reached that you have no idea about. We're going to do a lot of reading. Right now, I'm just just letting you know. Get your eyes ready. Verse 6 through 22. There are some names, but I've been practicing, so hopefully it goes well. Here's another transition. Verse 6. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I don't know, as a guy, somehow, I love this. I mean, he comes in and he's ticked. And he comes in and he gets the king's permission. And he just goes through and he just chucks all of Tobiah's stuff out of the room. I think that is amazing. Anyway, I'll keep going. I could continue on that thought. Um, Verse 9. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. He goes through, and after throwing out all Tobias things, he says, you know what, we're going to start putting things back to order in the house of God like they should have been the whole time. Just because one guy was complacent doesn't mean that the whole ship is going to be sunk. So he goes through and he says, yeah, he's been complacent, but I'm coming back. And I'm back to the city that I love with the people that I love and we're going to make some changes in the house of God. Verse 10, he says, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had been given to them and, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. See this? This, to me, when I was studying this out, I had, I had this, this visual of me in boot camp. And I just had this idea of QM1 Burroughs, who's actually shorter than me. It's Believe it, it's true. He's shorter than me, and I remember him just being all in my face. And I think of, like, Nehemiah, when he's bringing the, all these people to attention, he says, people, you need to look around. The house of God is being neglected. And I can just see him lining everybody up and walking up and down the ranks, just Chewing into the people of them how they've neglected the house of God in his absence of approximately two years. Still have nightmares about QM1 burrows, though. Verse 12. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shemaliah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mattaniah, their assistant. Because these men were considered trustworthy, they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. So he goes through and he says, you know what? I'm going to file them up. I'm going to, I'm going to chew them up. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell them the wrong that has been done. And not only that, he says, I'm going to assign people who are qualified to do the work of God into the house of God. That way I don't always have to be here, but at least I know that when I left, when I stepped off my watch that I had people responsible, caring, and distributing the supplies to other people. And he says, because these men were considered trustworthy, is the reason why they were put there. See, I go through here and I think of, I'm reminded how much like my heart breaks about this, because I sit here and I think, you know what, what is, what is terrible about this as he goes through, and not only does he have to go and address all these issues, and he has to go through there, he also has to put people in charge. These are people that he loved. This is, this is a city that he helped to rebuild. And how fast things fade. Two years, the house of God is neglected. There may be walls, there are gates, but we're going to see here in a minute that even on the Sabbath they were disobeying and they were allowing the gates to be open on the Sabbath and they were doing some trade, which we'll see about. But I wonder how fast, and if you've ever thought for a minute, how fast the fade happens in your own marriage. Becoming complacent. I wonder how many marriages have absolutely failed because because husband and wife have somewhere along the way become complacent. Complacent either in their love life or complacent at work with, with a coworker, worker or compl- being complacent just in the way that they're supposed to care for and nurture their spouse. I wonder how many of us have become complacent in those areas. It's really easy to do the day-to-day and to neglect those that you love the most. It's really easy. I wonder if you or know, or, or you have or you've known anyone who maybe... They, raised, they thought they were doing well, and they raised their kids in church. But yet, somehow, when they turned 18 years old, the kids bolted. See, I, I speak into those situations because somewhere along the way, there has been some complacency in there. There's been, there has been. That maybe, not in every situation, but maybe in some situations, it's like, you know what, I was trying to do the right thing by having my kids in church, but yet maybe I didn't share Christ enough in my own life and I just let the professionals do it. Because your faith is supposed to invade every part of you. Every part of you. We're going to see in, at the end of the book of Nehemiah through chapter 13, there's three prayers kind of intermixed here. This is the first one in verse 14. Nehemiah says, he says, remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. He says, remember me for this. He says, God, it was in a poor condition when I got here. I'm trying to leave it better. When I leave, I'm trying to just leave it in a better condition than when I got it. He says, please remember me for this. Then we continue in verse 15 through 22. In those days I saw men in Judah trading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day, on the Sabbath day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to To them, why is this? What is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things, so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered, Nehemiah says, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men, people he could trust, at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? This also I love. This next part he says, If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. I don't think he's talking about touch-healing people. I think he's talking about some serious laying on of hands and knuckles. Um, From that time on, they no longer came to the Sabbath. (laughs) I wonder why. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. That's the second of the three prayers. You see, when people, Eliashib, when, when he neglected his role, when he wasn't, when he didn't assert leadership, and when he allowed other people to infiltrate the house of God, what happened? It all went away. Nehemiah went in to try and straighten out the situation. But we know that, that the city, at this point, the city is, it seems like it's, it's back. We're going to kind of see some of these same thoughts in two weeks with Nehemiah. But now, that's just, that's the first part. Then we're going to go with some brevity through Matthew, through our text in Matthew. Because we're going to see a reference in the New Testament of someone who kind of followed suit and it's a story that we all know so I'm not going to have to unpack it. It's a story we all know but we're going to kind of see a clear example in the New Testament of complacency and yet Maybe what our response should be. Starting in verse 22 of chapter 14. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he was dismissing the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeting, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Pay close attention to this. Verse 28, Peter doing what Peter did. He says, Lord, if it's you, I mean, if it's really you, he says, tell me to come to you on the water. What's Jesus' response in verse 29? He says, come. He says, bring it. You ask for something, he says, come on. Then Peter got down out of the boat. He walked on the water. And he came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. We know that immediately Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. And he says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? See, what's so interesting to me in this passage is, A, yeah, we know that it took... It took guts for Peter to ask. He says, if it's really you, he says, tell me to come walk on the water. And Jesus says, sounds like a deal. Come. And, and as amazing as that is, we see that after that, Peter got down out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. Picture this, if you will. He, his eyes are on Jesus. He's fixed on Jesus. He, he, he's out of the boat, he's walking on water, he doesn't necessarily, he's not even looking at the water, he's looking at, at Jesus because he's walking to Jesus. And yet, what happens in the verse right after that? But when he saw the wind, so where did his eyes go? Off of Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink. It was at that moment that he became complacent because he took his eye off of the prize, which is Jesus Christ. And when he took his eyes off of Jesus and he put him on other things, at that moment he became complacent. And what happened when he became complacent? He began to sink. And right after that, as he's sinking, the only way for him to be brought back to the surface of the water is by what? Putting his eyes back on Jesus. What I love about not only that story, but kind of this whole, that, that whole story of when, when Peter walked on the water is because we can absolutely see, or see with some clarity that when, when we go through the motions, when we're complacent, we take our eyes off of the things that we should be fixed on. And we, if we... we put our eyes onto the peripheral things of life and take our focus off of Jesus, then all of a sudden we start to see our fear, our worry, our job loss, our I've got a family member who doesn't know Christ, I have all these things going on, and we see our focus should always be Christ, it shouldn't be all these peripheral things. If we put our eye on Christ... He will allow us to see things. But if we just look down and we took our eyes off of Christ, we become complacent because then all of a sudden we get wrapped up into all the problems of life instead of the life giver. Do you follow that? One is set on complacency. One is set on dependency. We should be dependent on Christ. Nothing that you have in your life has It has been given to you because you've deserved it. Nothing. Everything that we have, all the places that you've been, the people that you've met, the family that you have, even your in-laws, is all of the Lord. And we should be dependent on Him day to day for every part of our life. And my question for you this morning is are you a complacent Christian? Where are your eyes fixed this morning? Let it be on Christ and not just the things of life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, I thank you for being the life giver. Lord, just like the song that we sung earlier, that your love never fails. Though we may have pain in our life, we may have turmoil in our life, we may have financial struggles in our life, we may have all kinds of, maybe we even have relational struggles, maybe it's even marital struggles, but God, your love never fails. God, I pray that you would just help us not to be complacent Christians. People that can't be used because we're so busy looking at ourselves. Instead of, looking at you. And then in light of that, caring for the people who you told us to care for. I pray that you would just speak truth into our life long, long after we leave this, this space today. And Jesus, we are grateful for the cross. We're grateful not only for, for the, the sin debt that was paid on the cross for us, but also, Lord, we thank you for what we celebrated, God, that you resurrected on that third day. Showing to all humanity that you were God in the flesh and that you would do what you said you would do and you proved to all of us that you were God. And it's in that name that we pray this morning. Amen.